It's Thursday, August 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. After the latest two tragedies, many lawmakers are being pressured to do something to help stop the senseless violence taking the lives of so many. While measures like expanded background checks and assault rifle bans are harder to sell, red flag laws often have bipartisan support. But do they stop mass shootings? John Shupi, reporter for NBC News Digital, joins us to discuss how they work. Next, in recent years, there have been a ton of alternatives to conventional cow's milk hit the market. Things like soy milk, almond milk, and coconut milk. But the new frontier may be lab-made dairy, creating the proteins that make dairy, dairy, and then use them to make cheeses and other products that never came from an animal. Inya Radman, molecular biologist and founder of New Culture, joins us for the quest to make cow-free dairy. Finally, we've reached peak baby in bars. The rise of craft brewing and tap rooms has made family-friendly drinking establishments more common, and it is becoming the new place to take the kids. But while it can all be for fun, it can make some people feel awkward. And then there's that whole drink responsible thing. Steffi Grobe, plant, contributor to Vox, joins us to explain the rise of babies in bars. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We must make sure that those judged to pose a grave risk to public safety do not have access to firearms, and that if they do, those firearms can be taken through rapid due process. That is why I have called for red flag laws. Joining us now is John Shupi, reporter for NBC News Digital. Thanks for joining us, John. Thank you for having me. After these two mass shootings that have happened in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, the calls always come in after something like this happens. What are we going to do to help fix this? What are we going to do about gun legislation? And how are we going to handle all of this? Right away, the conversation on the Democratic side a lot of times revolves around banning assault rifles and these other types of guns. On the Republican side, a lot of them are uh, circling around red flag laws that has a lot of bipartisan support. But the big question is, will these red flag laws do anything to stop mass shootings? Let's start with what these red flag laws usually do. How do they work? They're crafted in different ways in different states. But generally speaking, these laws give police or relatives, family members, close people, friends, an avenue to report to authorities and ultimately to a judge, someone who they fear, reasonably fear, are at risk of hurting themselves or somebody else. That ultimately goes before a judge. And then if that judge agrees with the assessment, police can then seize the guns temporarily. And then Generally speaking, there's a process by which the person whose guns have been seized can fight it and or try to get them brought back to their home. Now, applying this to what we just went through, I I think it might apply the most to the 24-year-old man who killed nine, injured 14 in Dayton, Ohio. Classmates of his from the past came forward and said, we reported him to school officials a bunch of times. He had these kill lists and rape lists. But these were things in the past. He had nothing really in his record to make him known to police. So would this red flag law have even helped in this case? That's a that's a huge question. Nobody knows for sure, because the full extent of how he what he what he was doing in the hours and days and weeks leading up to the attack 
it still remains a bit unclear. But if we're talking about things that happened a decade or so ago, the power that a red flag law would have in trying to somehow interfere with an attack all these years later is distant because they're temporary by nature. And even if there was a red flag law 10 years ago and he had his guns taken away 10 years ago, they very likely would not be in effect today. 17 states right now have red flag laws on the books. The conversation now obviously would be to do this on the federal level. Has anybody proposed any of this type of legislation yet, or is it just all talk still? There's been some bipartisan support initially for getting something on the books in Congress supporting red flag laws, even if it's funding efforts for states to pass these laws. The interesting thing, as you mentioned earlier, about these laws is that they are a rare instance of politicians on both sides of the aisle finding a little bit of common ground on guns. There's not been much research into the effect of these types of laws, but from what we do know, it seems to maybe help a little bit more with suicides rather than these large-scale shootings. Right. That's an interesting aspect of these red flag laws. We talk about them most often after a mass shooting, but the way that they are applied are typically with people who are at risk of harming themselves rather than somebody else. And so public health officials and public health researchers and harm prevention researchers see the most value in suicide prevention. Connecticut and Indiana have the oldest red flag laws on the books, and so research has focused there. And what limited research there has been in those states indicates that it modestly decreases the suicide rate. And that's all we really know at this point. The impact on homicides, let alone mass shootings, is very much up in the air. You know, at least this is one of those things that seems to be gaining some traction. The president has said there's an appetite for action on background checks. But by all accounts, most experts say it's always a combination of things. You know, it is background checks. It is these red flag laws. It might be action on banning assault rifles. But it needs to be that and a broader societal change for any of this stuff to really make a difference. Correct. Red flag laws cover a very narrow band of circumstances involving homicides and mass shootings, as we just discussed. And as public health researchers will tell you, that's only a piece of what needs to be done to try to prevent some of these attacks from happening in the first place and they require much broader solutions. Well, uh, the pressure is on right now. The president visited the residents of Dayton, Ohio and El Paso, Texas, and the local lawmakers there right away were you know, pleading for the president to take some sort of action. I know people across the country are asking their elected officials to take some type of action. So we'll see if anything really develops this time. You saw that with uh, the Ohio governor yesterday, Mike DeWine, where people were shouting him down and he responded to them. And he seemed sincerely interested in trying to get some legislation passed. John Shupi, reporter for NBC News Digital. Thank you very much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. So this is what new culture is trying to solve. We're really trying to crack the science, the molecular backbone of what is cheese and how cheese is made and 
what gives properties to cheese and what are the necessary molecules that we need to have um, that come usually from animals. Joining us now is Inya Radman, co-founder of New Culture and Molecular Biologist. Thank you very much for joining us, Inya. Thank you for having me, Oscar. It's a pleasure. We're going to be talking about this new quest for lab-made dairy. We've uh, talked about this in the past before with lab-made meat. We've talked about companies like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat working on making these alternatives to animal products. And the next big thing could be getting milk and cheeses, but without the cow. Inya, please tell us a little bit about what you're working on. You're absolutely right. I think there's been a big hype. And to be honest, for a reason, and there should be around um, replacing meat in many different ways. And there are two key ways as consumers that people should be aware of is you when you try to replace meat product with a plant-based product, which is what you were describing with the Beyond Meat or the Impossible Burger. And second is somewhat more challenging technically when you try to replace meat with a lab-grown or cell-grown, as we call it, meat product. And those would be the companies such as Memphis Meats or New Age Meats or Finless Foods for fish, creating real animal ingredients, either muscle or meat or dairy, but without animals. So we belong to that second category. So if you were to think of dairy products, you know, uh, for example, plant-based milks, uh, like oat milk, almond milk, soy milk. And we've seen with, with the consumer uh, behavior, at least, that people have been quite happy with those substitutes for milk. But what we see, interestingly, is that not the same is true for cheese. Cheese consumption globally grows steadily, both of regular dairy cheese as well as the what, vegan cheeses, so plant-based cheeses. What turns out to happen is that, you know, cheese is this magical product that, um, that has very special properties, uh, special texture, special structure, special flavor, uh, stretchiness, mouthfeel. And we haven't, as a community, we haven't been able to, to make a really good, sustainable and tasty cheese with plant-based ingredients. Vegan cheeses are a little tough. I've had a few and there's some that taste pretty good, but it, it never uh, really is the same as that normal cheese. We really think that the only way to make good, tasty cheese is that it, it has to be cheese, which means it has to have dairy in it. If it has to have dairy, that actually means it has to have a crucial molecule, crucial component, which are the casein proteins found in milk and, and hence in cheese as well. So there, there are multiple problems there. First is that as simple as this, if product is not really tasty and it's not anything like cheese, people will not really want to buy it. Um, right. And that's what's happening. And then second is nutritional problem as well, is that, you know, these often lack any protein, really, these vegan cheeses. So so this is what new culture is trying to solve. We're really trying to crack the science, the molecular backbone of what is cheese and how cheese is made and what gives properties to cheese and what are the necessary molecules that we need to have um, that come usually from animals. So there at New Culture, you guys are, are focused on producing uh, casein specifically. And you guys have a mozzarella cheese that has been pretty successful so far in achieving some of the texture and the taste uh, so far. Tell us a little bit about the mozzarella that you guys have been working on. So I must say that that's like a proof of concept cheese we've been we've been working on. It's far from from our real product, but it's been we've been working on that formulation to figure out how do you take casein proteins, which have to form these special structures called casein micelles, and how do you so how do you take casein micelles and then how do you supplement everything else that you need, a fat and sugar, and how do you 
you use traditional cheesemaking process to turn that into cheese and specifically mozzarella. So that's part of the work we've been, we've been uh, trying to crack because it's really important for us. We are a products company and we not only want to make, yes, we're making casein proteins, but we're actually making casein proteins in a very streamlined and specialized way for cheesemaking. So yeah, this is, we, we've been working on both sides and producing these casein proteins um, because this is really the technological challenge. How do you produce these proteins without animal now? So we use what's called microbial fermentation. Basically, we can brew, we can ferment microbes with, with sugar, with basic food stock for them. And, you know, we can make them churn our proteins of interest, which are caseins in our case. We're very early on. We're a very, very young company. So um, we, we, you know, we, we achieved key milestones. We show this is possible, but we're very far from from um, actually making mozzarella that we can sell one day. <laughs> right. But this is this is what we aim to do in, in the next few years. Um, we're explaining how this technology works, why it is safe. It is producing exactly the same proteins that, that the animal is producing, really. And yeah, I think this is the key to really having people open at least to, to trying our product and then deciding for themselves if this is better for them, as I said, on multiple levels. Right. Well, it's very interesting. Uh, the science is very interesting. And I just really see this trend continuing. So good luck on all of that. And we'll keep following this to see how this all develops, this new frontier of cow-free dairy. Inya Radman, co-founder of New Culture. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the future. There are about 7,000 breweries in the country right now, and chances are, if you don't want to go to one that happens to be more populated by kids, you'll probably find another one that maybe doesn't have, you know, as lenient of family-friendly policy. Joining us now is Steffi Grobe-Plant, freelance writer and contributor to Vox. Thanks for joining us, Steffi. Thank you for having me. Wanted to have some fun and talk about the rise of babies in bars. With the rise of craft brewing, it's really made these places very family friendly and more and more people are starting to bring their kids. It, you know, it's they have food options. It's not just about getting drunk and at these tap rooms and these breweries. So parents are starting to bring their kids so that they can have some fun, too. Tell us a little bit about this, Steffi. Yeah, we've really seen, as you said, this influx of breweries and, and tap rooms, which are the on-premise places to sample and drink beer at breweries. Right now, there are somewhere around 7,000 breweries in the country operating. That's a huge, huge influx from 10 years ago when there were about 1,500. And yeah, breweries are, they're open during the day, and they tend to have a lot of outdoor space, even in cities like New York and, and like Brooklyn, and room for kids to move around. Yeah, we're seeing this rise of craft beer alongside this rise of family-friendly drinking establishments. Yeah, no, the reason why this caught my eye at the radio station that we that I work at, we have a, a certain show that does this thing called News and Brews where we just try to get out and, and we go to some breweries and, and do the shows live from there. And we oh, nice. started noticing a lot of families coming, a lot of parents bringing their very young babies and whatnot. And we kept saying, that's kind of funny right there that, you know, they're bringing the baby. But it kind of draws these questions 
you know, a lot of times people are going to these places to have a good time, to get away from kids. And, you know, when you see a, a, a young child there, uh, to the to the other people, at least, you know, it kind of puts them back on their heels a little bit. It's like, oh, do I need to act differently now that there's kids involved here? At these yeah, places? yeah. Yeah, there's like, you know, a little bit of controversy around bringing your kids, bringing your babies to breweries. One of the um, beer experts and brewery experts that I spoke to for this piece, Joshua M. Bernstein, he's a beer writer out of Brooklyn. You know, he brought up the fact that, yeah, there are about 7,000 breweries in the country right now. And, and chances are, if you don't want to go to one that happens to be more populated by kids, you'll probably find another one that maybe doesn't have, um, you know, as lenient of family-friendly policy. But a lot of breweries are also implementing curfews. There's a brewery also in Brooklyn called Three's Brewing, and they have a 7 p.m. curfew for, you know, they suggest that kids welcome until 7, but after 7, it's, this transforms into an adult's only place. Right. And that, and that makes sense because as the day gets later, you know, the rowdy crowds start coming and yeah, that's yeah. when you don't want your kids there. Now, what about the responsibility of parents? Obviously, most people could probably handle a beer, especially if you're having lunch, things like that. And I'm speaking on this as from an outside perspective. I don't have children. I've never taken a child to a bar. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, when you see a parent starting to drink a beer, you're like, uh-oh. You know, what's going to happen there? You know, so that's kind of the other awkward thing that people, observers from the outside are kind of thinking. Right, right. Responsible parenting really can include responsible drinking, but the, you know, the emphasis is on that word responsible. So, you know, when you walk into a brewery, that doesn't mean you stop being a parent necessarily. And this is not to say that that's the norm, but it's something that the owner of the same brewery in, in Brooklyn, Three's Brewing, um, Josh Stillman, that, that's been something of an issue for them of having to sort of uh, remind parents that, you know, hey, you're responsible for your, your kin. Um, he, uh, he said it really well himself that the brewery is not a daycare, but we are really happy to have kids here during the day. So the onus is on the parents in that way. There is a collection of breweries in the Pacific Northwest. They have a specially cordoned off area that's meant for kids. And it lets the adults um, watch their children, um, be present, be engaged with them, but also keeps the kids from potentially running amok. Yeah, I mean, I think it totally makes sense. A lot right. of these craft brewery places really do pride themselves on being open to everybody. You know, bringing the babies is not such a big problem. It's just uh, sometimes it is a little awkward to, you know, when you're not bringing your kids, you're like, oh, man, now I have to be on my best behavior. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's critical to kind of, you know, own your own your stuff and be responsible in all things, right. whether, whether there are kids present or whether there are not kids present. Yeah. Steffi Grobe, Plant freelance writer, contributor to Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Brooke Peterson and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.